Good morning, everyone. It's a joy and an honor to be preaching the Word this morning. I want to begin by thanking the elders for the opportunity to preach this next month on the book of Jonah. Uh, It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, not just because it's a whale of a tale. That's an example of what my wife likes to call pastor jokes. And uh, don't you worry, I've got plenty more where that came from. Uh, But apart from what everyone knows about the book of Jonah, right, that it involves a dramatic encounter with a really big fish, uh, I want to begin this series by noting I think the book of Jonah is exactly the kind of book we'd want to consider in light of what the elders have set forth for us as a vision for EBF this year, stepping into relationship, stepping up to serve, stepping out on mission. As we're going to see, pictures of what it does and doesn't look like to be faithfully on mission, along with pictures of what it does and doesn't look like to serve our neighbor, especially those that are very different from us, uh, those are very prominent in this book. So inevitably, we're going to be looking at what it means to step up in service and step out on mission. But what's amazing about this story with all its action and dramatic moments out at sea and in the most notorious city in the ancient world, is that ultimately it's a story about more than anything, our hearts as they relate to our gracious, merciful, compassionate, holy, just, and sovereign God. So we'll be looking from a slightly different angle in a way also at what it means to step into deeper relationship with the triune God and then with others in light of that foundational relationship. Now, you might be thinking, boy, that that sounds great. I I can't wait. Anybody? Uh, Well, I appreciate your enthusiasm, uh, but I also want to warn you as we begin these four weeks that Jonah is a book to borrow the language of a 20th century author, that bites and stings us, shaking us awake like a blow to the skull. Hmm, pleasant. Uh, I can't ever recall being excited about receiving a sledgehammer to the head, but essentially that is what we were signing up for when we're beginning the book of Jonah together. Okay, sorry. Uh, That's the bad news. Uh, It does this. It, it, It doesn't sort of seem like a sledgehammer at first glance, right? It seems like this story that is kind of odd and and simple, quiet, right? Not a big deal. But what's going to happen is the story is going to gradually draw us in, okay? This story about a disobedient, foolish, and hard-hearted prophet is going to gradually but undeniably invite us to find it's not... Jonah's rebellious and hardened heart alone that's on display, but that ours is as well. In fact, if we read this story as merely a historical account of what happened to a prophet way back when, without grasping how the story is actually a stunning portrayal of each and every one of us right now, we will have entirely missed the point and power of the book. So we've got to avoid that pitfall. Jonah, when it is read as it should be, is a book that reveals our hearts and then goes on to perform surgery on the same. So I'm excited about preaching this book, but I'm also nervous. Nervous because I don't personally enjoy heart surgery, 
And I have never heard of anyone who does. But that's what we're signing up for. Now, heart surgery is good, right? In the end. But in the process, it's incredibly painful. The healing and growth in Christ, which God wants to cultivate in each of us as we go through this book, is going to be a humbling process. Okay? If we allow the sting of this book to bite us and awaken us and change us as the Spirit intends, that's, that's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. And so because I am just as resistant to that sort of painful, humbling process as you are, uh, let's pray together for God to be at work as we approach this book together. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this new book this morning, I pray that you would show us where we are like Jonah and thus where we need to repent, to receive your abundant grace anew, and to grow more and more to have your heart of mercy and compassion for others. We pray for open ears and soft hearts that are sensitive to your purposes. We thank you for continually pursuing disobedient and hard-hearted people like us, like me. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray these things with eager expectation. Amen. Now, one more thing at the outset. Uh, Don't let the brevity of these four chapters fool you. Uh, There is a lot going on in this little book. A lot. Way more than we could possibly cover. It's a tour de force, and it's a literary masterpiece. Okay? So in light of that, I want to highly recommend a kind of companion study to our four-week sermon series. It's a book by Tim Keller. It's hot off the presses, just released a week ago. It's called The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah, and the Mystery of God's Mercy. And there will be an email that will be going out at some point this week to highlight that again and give you a, a link to click on. I would really recommend that you pick up this study. I have found it incredibly Uh, encouraging, convicting, helpful. And while I'll uh, I'll be sharing some of Kettler's insights from time to time, I would recommend you get a copy so that it could be maybe a daily devotion amidst this next month. It could be something you look at in your ethos communities. It could be a Sunday afternoon read. It could be something you digest with family and friends at the dinner table. Let's think about making this next month a month that we're in the book of Jonah in a deeper way. For today, the beginning of the story in chapter 1. And here what I hope we're going to see is that God's character, call, and divinely wrought circumstances reveal what's in our hearts. I'm going to say that again. God's character, call, and divinely wrought circumstances reveal what's in our hearts. We're going to see that today through the example of Jonah in two parts, and you'll see them on your outline in the bulletin. First, we'll see this truth through Jonah's heart exposed in the first three verses. And then we'll see it through Jonah's heart contrasted with others in the remainder of the chapter. Okay? So let's begin with verses 1 to 3. Jonah's heart exposed by God's character, call, and divinely wrought circumstances. Look again at that section, again in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. All right, let's pause there. So no sooner are we introduced to the main characters of this story, right? The Lord, Jonah, a pagan people. And here that Jonah has received a word from the Lord, that we see Jonah on his way to the ends of the earth, running away from Nineveh, his calling, and even the presence of the Lord itself. But let's slow things down a bit here, and let's get a better sense of these characters in the lay of the land. It's going to be important for the story ahead. So we know the Lord, I hope, right? The God of Israel, who will be revealed in due time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The story begins with what is a a very common occurrence in the Old Testament, the Lord giving a word of revelation and proclamation to a prophet that he's raised up to speak it, right? Very familiar territory. In this case, the person is Jonah, son of Amittai, a prophet that we encounter in only one other part of Scripture. It's 2 Kings chapter 14. And there we learn that Jonah lived during the reign of Jeroboam II. He was one of the eviler kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he reigned in the 8th century B.C. Okay? Now, I know this is scratching the itch of you history buffs, but I already see some of you beginning to nod off. So, here's the payoff of that historical backdrop. Ready? Jonah, before the endeavors we're going to explore in this story, has himself witnessed the restorative compassion of God extended to Israel, even though they were unrepentant and undeserving of that blessing. Did you catch that? He's already seen God be merciful and gracious to Israel. It's a prophet who's seen that very mercy and compassion who now receives yet another word from the Lord, this time regarding a message to be given to a pagan people, Assyrians living in the capital city of Nineveh. Jonah's told that the evil of this great, meaning impressive or important city, has come to God's attention, such that he wants Jonah to go and call out against it, or as the NIV has it, to preach against it. So why does Jonah flee the minute he receives his marching orders? Well, in chapter 4, we're going to find out even more of what he's thinking, but for now, we can get a pretty good idea. He didn't want the same grace and compassion that Israel had experienced to be extended to a people who were very clearly enemies of God's people. That's what the Assyrians were, for sure. Fearful that this would happen, that the God of compassion and mercy would show that same compassion to a people Israel despised, Jonah is up on his feet. He's fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's supposed to head northeast, but instead he begins to head south to a coastal city called Joppa to catch a ferry, more or less. And from there he starts heading west for Tarshish. It's a tough one to say, Tarshish. Try that one a few times if you need some vocal warm-ups. Most likely, this is out on the coast of modern-day Spain, which in that day and age was known as the edge of, of the known world, right? So literally the ends of the earth for him. For all of you who struggled in cartography, southwest is the exact opposite direction of northeast, right? That's the payoff there. We're not heading the right way. 
So Jonah is literally trying to flee to the ends of the earth to get away from God's character and call. And of course, in being introduced to Jonah in in this very way, we're very quickly going to see the foolishness of Jonah's behavior, right? For one, the repetition of the fact that Jonah was seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's downright humorous if we think about it. After all, how can you flee from the God who is sovereign over all the universe? You can't. And anyone who thinks they can is kidding themselves. But the other thing we see is that the language being used to describe Jonah's flight here inherently communicates how detrimental this plan is from the get-go. For though it says that Jonah rose up to flee, from that point on, every step that Jonah takes is downward. He heads down to Joppa. And then, when he finds the ship, where some translations say he went on board, the Hebrew is literally, he went down into it. In just a few verses, we'll see he's made his way even further down into the hull of the ship. And by the end of the chapter, Jonah is hurled overboard in a sinking down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, this is intentional. The text is trying to get our attention here and to get us to agree. Jonah and what he is doing is heading down, 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 down. Jonah's response to the call of the Lord is about as bad as it could be. In just three verses, Jonah's heart is exposed by God's character call and divinely wrought circumstances. And the truth is that our hearts are already exposed as well. For as we read this, we might already be thinking, boy, that Jonah, what a goof. I mean, how could he be so foolish and hard-hearted as to run from the Lord like that? But of course, I have to ask, has there never been a time when you have fled the calling of God in your life? When God called you to do one thing and you intentionally disobeyed and fled the other direction as fast as you could? If we're honest, the answer is that we've probably fled from the Lord's call and and even his presence more times than we care to admit, right? We actually do it any time we sin, imitating our first ancestors who hid from God when they had gone their own way rather than his. Because the truth is God's character, call, and the circumstances he brings about in our lives reveal what's already there in our hearts. It's just brought to the surface by God's sovereign intervention. I know this is true in my own life going all the way back to the days before I was a Christian. I remember that when a new youth pastor came to my church and began preaching the gospel, I was confronted with the call of God on my life. And to be honest, well, I loved my sin, and I I wanted to keep living life my way, right? I was threatened by what it meant to make Jesus Lord of my life. Because I didn't want to change. I fled from the Lord even as he was calling me unto himself. There was a man at the former church that I served that was prone to describe this kind of similar period in his life, seeking to live apart from God, as what he called plowing the sea. Now, I don't know how many of you ever plowed anything, much less tried to plow the sea. Uh, I know I haven't. But either way, I, I think you get the point, right? 
Such attempts are futile because it's living out of sync with God's intention and design, right? It's not going to work. And maybe some of you in this room are still there, ignoring the most basic call of God on your life for you to be reconciled and made right with him through Jesus Christ. You're exhibiting the same characteristics as Jonah, foolishly running away from the source of truth and life itself. You're trying to find fulfillment and peace where there's only disillusion and chaos. Let me just tell you from my experience, you you can't flee forever. The hound of heaven tracked me down just like he's tracking down Jonah in this book. And I, I pray the same for you, that you would give up the impossible flight away from grace and truth, that you would stop in your tracks and give up that fool's errand for, to see it for what it really is in that. And if, if that's you today, I, I'd love to talk with you afterwards about what that might look like. It'd be a joy to have that conversation with you. But here's the real catch, okay? Even after becoming a Christian, I didn't stop running from God in other areas. The fleeing continued in certain ways. In certain areas of my life, I wanted to wall off and not allow the Lord to change and impact. The fleeing continued as I sought to escape him and his call for me to do certain things and to live in light of who I was in Christ. And if I'm honest, there's still certain areas I'm I'm still foolishly running. That's much more like Jonah's situation. Someone who knows the Lord, yet flees from the very thing the Lord is asking him to do. Truth is, I know when the Lord is calling me to have a difficult conversation that I don't want to have. Or to swallow my pride and admit that I was wrong and ask for forgiveness. Or to put my reputation on the line and share my faith with someone who isn't going to look highly upon my Christian convictions. Every time I disobey and fail to trust in the grace of God for me, in a way, I flee him and his call and his blessing that he would have for me in obedience. In a way, I'm, I'm just like Jonah and I'm just like Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. And so as we start the book of Jonah together, and we see him booking it to Tarshish, I think we do well to ask right from the start, where am I fleeing from the Lord? even today, even now. What is God calling me to do that makes me want to get on a boat and go the opposite direction so that I won't have to obey him? Is there something on your heart even now? Something that God has been impressing upon you and bringing before you again and again that you have ignored at this point? Let's start learning from Jonah's example now. That's part of the goal of this book. Not flee from those things. Let's remember that as hard as it is to obey, doing what the Lord is calling you to do is always the best way to go, even if it doesn't look like that's the case at the time. EBF, don't ignore what the Lord is setting before you. In his word or in the leading of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. To do so is to set out on the Jonah track. And as we're going to see, that's not exactly where you want to be, right? Let's look more at why that's the case. Okay, now that we know the characters and the setting and situation a bit more, let's, 
hear about how Jonah's pleasure cruise went, okay? Whereas before we saw Jonah's heart exposed, now we're going to see his heart contrasted with others in verses 4 to 17, okay? Notice how the text in verse 4 begins, but the Lord. Thankfully, God intervenes with a storm before the sinking ship of Jonah's life can take on any more water. In the book of Jonah, as with all the scriptures, there can never be any question about God's sovereign control over the created order. What is happening here is not coincidence or the fates or karma or anything like that. The text says the Lord hurled a great wind and all of a sudden the sailors had a monumental storm in their hands, probably bigger than anything they had ever encountered. And from that point on in the story, from verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter, essentially what we have is one contrast after another of Jonah and these pagans. And the irony thickens because they aren't just pagans. They're pagan sailors who had the same reputation in the ancient world that they maybe have in some ways today, right? Let's just say a motley crew, okay? For instance, notice the, the first comparison, verses 5 to 6. When the storm threatens the ship, the sailors are afraid. They call out to their gods, and they do everything in their power to save the ship, which includes throwing loads and loads of cargo off the boat to lighten it. They're engaged, right? Where is Jonah? Hmm. He is resting. <laughs> he is sleeping in the hold of the ship either blissfully ignorant or outright indifferent to what is happening to the boat and its crew. Jonah, unlike the sailors, is not afraid as he should be. He's not calling out to his God as he should be. And he's not doing a single thing to pull his weight and save the ship and the lives of those on it as he should be. And the scene that, again, is slightly comedic here, the captain of the ship has to come down and actually wake this scallywag up, you know? From the captain's point of view, any person's God on the boat could be angry with them, right? So out of care and concern for the whole crew, every single person on the ship needs to do their part in placating, well, whatever God it is that needs placating. And layers of irony begin to emerge as we realize it takes a pagan sailor to exhort Jonah to call out to his God as he should. The captain speaks better than he knows. For Jonah's God is indeed behind the storm. He's indeed angry with one of the crew members, and he is indeed concerned that none should perish. He only desires to get Jonah's attention in a way that will lead him to repent and receive grace anew. That's what he's interested in. And so the contrast continues in verse 7. The sailors proactively cast lots to determine on whose account this evil has come upon us. They, unlike Jonah, are determined to get to the bottom of the matter. And their worldview is such that they, they search out the culprit by the cultural equivalent of drawing straws, right? And this particular situation, wouldn't you know it, Jonah drew the short straw. Hmm, Interesting. While all the sailors may have accounted for it by appealing to the fates or some impersonal force of destiny, we know, as Jonah did, that the Lord sovereignly ordained that result. 
In this particular role of the dice, God made Jonah's number come up to continue to get his attention and the attention of the sailors. And so the Inquisition begins in verse 8. They want to know everything about him. What kind of trouble he's gotten himself into recently, his vocation, his homeland, his people group. And the answers, of course, are to Jonah's shame. Can't you just imagine his embarrassment as he confesses to this group of pagan sailors even the basics of his biography? He says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Oh, really? You fear the Lord? It doesn't look like it. And then verse 10 brings out another element of contrast between the sailors and Jonah. For what is their reaction to Jonah's short but embarrassing bio? It says the men were exceedingly afraid, which in the Hebrew is expressed in the most extreme way possible. They weren't just slightly concerned here. They were absolutely terrified. After all, this man has confessed, as verse 10 makes clear, that he is seeking to flee from the God who, has, who is the maker not only of heavens and earth, but also the sea. See, they see now, in a way that's, again, quite ironic, the foolishness of such an errand. How can you escape from the God who's created all things and clearly exercises sovereignty over them as indicated by the horrific storm that's swirling around them. See, in the ancient world, people thought about gods as these localized deities, right? They, they had their own turf, so to speak. It was kind of a turf war. So if you upset a particular god, one solution was to simply flee that territory and, and head to the territory of another god. Or, or maybe even to the ends of the earth. That might be a good place to take refuge, Right? But how do you flee from the God who's sovereign over all? <laughs> no matter where you travel, on land or sea or the skies, you can't. You can't. And Jonah, of all people, a prophet of the one true God, should have known that. He should have acted accordingly. He knew better. Instead, he acted much more like an unbeliever would have. He sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. And ironically, it's the unbelievers, the pagan sailors, who see what a ridiculous idea such a flight is. And there's no way to escape from such a sovereign God. They, they see that. And not only that, the sailors have the appropriate reaction of fear that Jonah failed to. The sailors, again, they're, they're shaking in their, I don't know, water boots. <laughs> These guys are fearful now. They say straight up to Jonah, what is this you've done? At least they realize what a horrendous thing it is to be on this God's bad side. And Jonah, sadly, all he does is confess that he fears the Lord. But his actions don't back it up. It's all talk for Jonah here. If he really feared the Lord as he should, he wouldn't be heading the opposite direction of where the Lord was calling him to go. And he certainly would have, wouldn't have sat back nonchalantly while the ship went down in a perfect, divinely orchestrated storm. In this case, actions do indeed speak much louder than words. The sailors go on to ask him what they need to do to placate this God of heaven and earth and the sea that the storm might be calm and they might live. 
And Jonah's response is jaw-dropping. What does it say in verse 12? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, what would you say is wrong with Jonah's response here? Where is he continuing to miss the point of the Lord's discipline in this? Can you see it? It's not in the fact that he is the cause of all the commotion, because he is. And it's not in the fact that the sea would calm if he was thrown overboard. For we see in just a moment, that's exactly what happens. What's completely wrong with Jonah's response here is that he still doesn't understand what God wants him to do which is to repent, to repent. The Lord was sending the storm that Jonah might be awakened to the foolishness of his disobedience and repent, repent of seeking to escape from God's calling. Instead, we we hear Jonah utter nothing more than a death wish, really. For that is what it would mean to be thrown overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean. Certain death. Sadly, it seems Jonah would rather die than repent and change his course of action. Of course, the sailors realized that being overthrown would indeed be a death sentence. Look at verse 13. The sailors now understand Jonah's role. What do they do? They row even harder to try to get back to dry land. Knowing that to throw Jonah overboard is is to take his life. And, and they're guarding life. They respect life here, amazingly. You see the implicit contrast? Jonah's wishing for death, and the pagan sailors are the ones so concerned about a human life, they delay the obvious thing that will bring immediate reprieve. But the well-intentioned effort fails, and the sailors are left with Jonah's proposal, and it's here the contrast with Jonah is actually at its greatest. For one, the sailors cry out to the Lord, something that Jonah has yet to do. Though they previously called out to many false gods, now they join in one common prayer to the Lord that he might not hold them accountable for Jonah's life. They're acknowledging the sovereignty of the one true God over everything that's happening. And though they have concern for human life, they have an even greater concern to avoid stirring up the wrath of this God who is so great. And so in verse 15, they obey the will of the Lord. Something that Jonah, up to this point in the book, still has yet to do. They take the Hebrew, the prophet of God, and they hurl him into the sea. Whoa. And the text seems to communicate that as soon as they do, the storm ceased to rage and the waters became calm. Pretty dramatic stuff. Could there be any clearer picture that the Lord is sovereign over all of this that's transpiring? And finally, how do the sailors respond then to all this? Verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I don't think we realize how shocking of a statement this would have been to the original hearers. I mean, here we have men who a few minutes earlier were calling on the name of every single God they could possibly think of, right? 
But now, having seen the Lord's sovereign intervention, the text says they feared the Lord. The exact same expression that would have been used to describe faithful Israelites, covenanted members of God's people. The fact is, these unbelieving pagans did what Jonah should have been doing all along. They feared the Lord, they obeyed his call, they submitted to his will. The pagans offer a sacrifice unto the Lord where Jonah failed to offer the living sacrifice of his life. And the sailors made vows of faithfulness to the Lord where Jonah was clearly breaking his vow to be a prophet of God, to be a spokesperson for God. And so we'll have to wait until next week to see what happens when foolish prophet meets big fish. But we need to pause here and ask, what is the meaning of all of this heart contrast going on between Jonah and these pagan sailors? I mean, that was a lot of text we just worked through all to communicate that point over and over and over and over and over again. So what's the point? What's the payoff? I would argue that we are seeing here the fact that the character of God to pursue a rebellious prophet, the call of God for him to return to his mission and to faithfulness, and the circumstances of a raging storm that quiets when Jonah is thrown overboard, All of this is revealing that Jonah doesn't have the heart he should as a man representing the one true God in the world. His heart is far from God, far from joyfully serving him and loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates. This is compounded by the fact that these unbelievers, right, these pagan sailors, they respond and fear and worship as they should to Jonah's great shame. So brothers and sisters, the right actions of unbelievers, they, they haven't just shamed the believing community in Jonah's day. It's happened again and again and again in the course of church history. One only has to think of examples such as unbelievers fighting for religious freedom or combating slavery, advocating for civil rights, long before the likes of the church came around on these things. When God's people are not faithful to live out the implications of the gospel in all of life, when they aren't obedient in light of the grace that they have received, when they fail to respond and repent as they should, they're rebuked by the very unbelievers around them who respond with more sensitivity to God and his concerns than they do. They're rebuked. And that's not just true in a bygone era. It's true today. We could probably enumerate a thousand examples to illustrate that very point, unfortunately. Why does the ethical humanist society sometimes do a better job of loving the poor and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant than we do? Why do Mormons sometimes have a greater missionary zeal and desire to people come into their church than we do? Why do religious pluralists often have a reputation in the community for being warm and receptive and understanding, while Christians more times than not have a reputation in the community for being judgmental, cold, closed off, selfish? Why? Why is that the case? 
Brothers and sisters, we know that those things should not be. But these are the sorts of questions, the sorts of issues that the book of Jonah is bringing to our attention. And we're only in chapter 1. You know, it raises these questions, not just in an abstract sense, but in a very personalized sense. We can think about all those groups out there, but let's bring it in. Let's bring it home. So I ask you, I ask myself, where do you find, if you can be honest, if you could actually open up here, that you're put to shame and rebuked by the example of unbelievers around you? That's a tough question. But it's one we're forced to face here. Where are the places in your life, in my life, where we lack faithfulness to God? And it's, it's rebuked by the more responsive hearts of our pagan neighbors. EBF, if we believe that God sovereignly brings about the circumstances in each and every one of our lives, and in so doing manifests his character and call in ways that reveal what's in our hearts, then we're called to learn from Jonah's story, starting today. The truth is we are all Jonas, with our hearts laid bare as we continue to fall short of God's glory and perpetually fail to emulate his heart. We see here in Jonah's example that when we flee from the Lord and his call in our lives, there, there is a painfully humbling process that God sovereignly brings about. Part of that humbling is looking around at the pagans who respond more appropriately to God's work and God's call than we do. That's humbling. It should be if we really recognize that, if we don't resist that. But ultimately, there is a wonderful purpose behind that divinely wrought humbling. A wonderful purpose that we would repent and receive once again the grace that God has mercifully and compassionately shown us in Christ. Tim Keller says, and I would agree with him, that the main purpose of God in the story of Jonah is to get Jonah to better understand grace. We think about all the grace extended to the Ninevites. We're going to get there. But the main purpose is to get Jonah to better understand grace. Hmm. And based on that fact that we're, we're all Jonas, right, then we, we can also say the main purpose that God has as we walk through the book of Jonah is to get us to understand grace in greater and greater ways. That we might slowly but surely start to live in light of that grace more and more. Becoming more and more like Christ. Living the kind of lives that are faithful to God and do represent his heart in the world. EBF, the wonderful truth which emerges in this passage, that because of his great love for us in Christ, God is graciously pursuing us, prompting us by reminders of his character, indications of his call, and the specifics of all of our circumstances. Will we respond as we should to that amazing grace? Let's pray for help in that. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge our brokenness, our unfaithfulness, our rebelliousness, our disobedience, our fear, 
our doubt and all the ways that we continually refuse your call and snub your character and walk away from the calling you've given to us. We acknowledge that. Help us to acknowledge that. Help us to bring those things out and see those things for what they are. Help us to feel the rebuke of this book and of the ways that our pagan neighbors sometimes are actually embodying things more faithfully than we should be. Help us to see that. Give us hearts that are soft to hear this word and not refuse it. And Lord, do this work in us. Help us to understand grace more that we might more fully live out the call you have given us. Continue to guide us as we work our way into this book and reveal your heart of grace and mercy and compassion to us. Pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.